0: You get a lot of people who don't look like each other and we are just still looking to our own individual destinations as opposed to being the new family of Jesus here. So I think the, the biggest misconception is that you get different people in the room and you're reconciled and you are expressing values of the kingdom of God. Sadly, you could be doing the total opposite.
1: Well, today on the podcast, we're going to talk about something we desperately need to be having honest conversations about, and that is multi-ethnic church. It's no secret that the church is very divided on this issue. Now, some of this is accidental. Some of this has been cultural and has developed over the years. We're going to hit this head on in today's podcast with Rich Viotis. Now, Rich serves as the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York. Now, This is the most diverse zip code in America. And he talks about the multi-ethnic nature of their church. They're continuing to serve their community. They've also had a huge impact on the church health conversation. Later on this year, we're going to have Pete's Caserzo on the podcast. Now, Pete led this church and passed this church along to Rich, and they've had an incredible succession plan and relationship, and they continue to be a source of health for many different churches. As you might remember as well, New Life was given uh, one of our Right Side Up Awards from 2019 as someone who is leading the way and helping other churches, leaders, and organizations get healthy so they can go the distance. I loved my conversation with Rich Viotas, and also would encourage you to share this podcast as we continue to wrestle through our division within the church, our way forward, and some of the realities of a multi-ethnic church. These are conversations we need to continue to have, and we want this podcast to be a place that we have those. So without further ado, dig into my conversation with Rich Viotas of New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York. Well, guys, we've got another great episode of the podcast today. I've got Rich Velotis on the podcast today coming in from Queens. Rich, thanks for joining us today.
0: Uh, Really good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So
1: tell us a little bit about yourself. You serve as the pastor of New Life Fellowship in Queens. Um, Many people know of the church from Pete's Caserzos. Writings. Um, Tell us about your story and how you found yourself in that role at New Life Fellowship.
0: Quick story. I mean, I didn't grow up in a Christian home uh, by any means. Uh, And my parents would send me to church as a kid, uh, a small Latino Pentecostal church. And after a number of years uh, visiting from time to time, I told my parents, I don't want to visit again. I don't know what's really going on in these churches. But by the time I was a, a teenager, I found myself back in the church uh, dating a pastor's daughter, which got me back to church very quickly. And soon after that relationship came to an end, I had my own teenage existential crisis. And it was through that crisis where I I came to know Jesus um, at the same church that as a kid my grandparents would take me to. And so from that point on, uh, after saying yes to Christ, and uh, on that night, about 14 other family members said yes to Christ as well in 1999, it was quite a remarkable night. Uh, I, I decided to go to Nyack College uh, up in Rockland County in, in New York and studied Bible, pastoral ministry, theology. I just had a, a sense that this is what I was called to do. So I went there, went to seminary, uh, afterwards Alliance Theological Seminary, and then found myself working at a local church in Brooklyn called the Brooklyn Tabernacle, where I oversaw young adult ministry, college ministry. And then in 2008, I found myself connecting with a pastor here at New Life, and I didn't know they were looking for another pastoral position to be filled. We were just talking about ministry stuff, and by the end of a two-hour conversation, he invited me to apply to the position. And I had already read Pete Cazero's uh, book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. So I knew about the church and I uh, was drawn to just the values of this church. And so in 2008, came here to be a preaching pastor and oversee small group ministry. And fast forward a quick five years, uh, within the five years, I actually ended up succeeding Pete. And so here I am, it's, I'm in my 11th year at New Life and my, entering my seventh year as the lead pastor here. So yeah, that's it in a nutshell, man.
1: Well, what was the process like of coming into that role? Just kind of, you know, put us in kind of your brain and heart during that season. How did that succession process go?
0: Well, I would say I was there in 2008. By 2010, a conversation was had with me by uh, one of the elders and said, hey, uh, Pete is uh, going to be stepping down from being the senior pastor at New Life in 2013, and we want to invite you to be a candidate uh, for, to, to take the, the role here. And uh, I had sensed from my early twenties that I wasn't called to be a church planter. I was really called to build on what someone else had planted. I just knew that deep down inside. And so when the opportunity came It felt like this is the kind of scenario that I envisioned for myself in terms of my skill set, in terms of my passions. And so when they invited me, they also invited us, a consultant, to help us think through what transition would look like. We wouldn't tell the congregation. I would lead behind the scenes. And as every year went on, uh, we had a particular metric to help us better uh, navigate through you know, who's doing hiring, who's doing firing, who's leading staff meetings, who's preaching as it pertains to Pete and I. And so for a good three years, we were just living it out, talking all the time, Pete and I in particular, and with the board. And uh, by the time 2012 came, about uh, 15 months before the actual uh, installation service, we announced it to our congregation. And they saw it coming, you know, they start seeing the shifts. And we announced it 15 months beforehand and uh, 15 months later i was i was being installed but it was a very wise i mean this is worth a, a long conversation in itself it was a very wise prudent slow uh healthy succession and pete remains on staff at new life uh seven years later and uh not every church can do that but it's worked for us but I would say the reason it worked is because of wise elders who brought in outside help, and we were very slow in the process. So, yeah, here we are.
1: That's beautiful. I mean, that is so rare to hear. And every church right now, as you know, that's had a lead pastor, a founding pastor now for a while is starting to say, we either need to have that conversation, we're having it, or are delaying it and are being super irresponsible to not have it Right around the country um, you're right. That's a whole conversation of itself. I sat with a leader um, who passed a, an organization successfully on and are seeing it do even better in his stead. And he said, that's just one of the greatest joys in the world, but so few leaders can do it. So that's that's beautiful to to just think about that. So you mentioned the values of New Life Fellowship. Tell us some of the values of the church and um, just kind of describe the makeup of the church, kind of take us into the heart of the congregation.
0: Yeah, our, our congregation, we are 32 years old, was planted in 1987, and we have about, I would say, fifteen to 1,800 people who are part of our congregation uh, here in Queens. We are in the area of Queens that has been considered the most diverse zip code in the world. Uh, we have over 75 nations represented in our congregation. If you go down to the local hospital, just a couple of miles from our church, there's 123 languages that are spoken in there, uh, to take out money, uh, $20 at the local ATM. Usually there's just an English option in our neighborhood. There's about 20 different language options. And so that's just a microcosm of the beauty as well as the complexity of being a church in this kind of setting. So we have a particular commitment to the poor and the marginalized. And so we are in one of the more poor areas in central Queens. For the last 25 years, we've had a community development corporation, a New Life CDC, in which we have uh, eight different programs to serve folks who are overlooked, under-resourced, immigrant communities. And so we have a health center and uh, that sees uh, many patients a year, English as a second language, classes, food, food and clothing pantry, youth organizing programs. And so, yeah, I, I mean, lots of great things happening here. It's a beautiful congregation. And our values, really, we, we have five particular values that anchor us in everything we do. And, uh, the first values that are monastic value, they all start with M it's our monastic value. Uh, in which we want to be a congregation that slows down to be with God, uh, having deep contemplative rhythms. Our second value is we are a multiracial congregation that we want to bridge racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers. So uh, while it says multiracial, we're thinking really multi-reconciliation. Uh, that's probably a, a word that captures that better. Our third value is that we we strive to be an emotionally healthy church. We just I know that doesn't start with an M, but we capitalize the M and make the E just lowercase to make. Im- it works for us over here. <laughs> uh, and so by that, we mean really having lives of interiority, lives of uh, integration, uh, lives where we're trying to live with integrity to love ourselves and love others well. And so out of that place here, we have our fourth M, which is our marriage to Christ value, which we're trying to orient our marriages, our singleness and our sexuality uh, out of marriage to Christ. So we're trying to see the, the intersection between sexuality and spirituality. And then our fifth value is that we're a missional church. We want to offer ourselves as a gift to the world. And so very practically, that means you know, everyone's on mission. Uh, we believe in justice and in, in mercy ministries. Uh, we believe that every person is in full-time ministry. And so we have a, a big emphasis on faith and work. And so those are the five values that, that make new life up and uh, shape almost everything that we do.
1: Awesome. Well, that's beautiful. And I want to specifically drill in today um, to multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and as you said, multi-reconciliation church. There is, you said, beauty and complexity in that. What do you love about leading a church into this multi-reconciliation church family?
0: Yeah, well, the first thing is food. No, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I say that jokingly. I have jokingly. I I mean, we, we are able to to taste the, the richness of various uh, ethnic and cultural uh, expressions that are found in our church. And so I, I mean that to say the various cultures and foods and gifts that every ethnicity brings uh, is a real gift. Uh, to see how people come to Scripture from different angles and different lens. Actually enhances our experience of what it means to understand God's word, what it means to worship, what it means to be on mission together, and so it's it's beautiful to see the various perspectives and stories that are outside of my own uh, perspective and story, and to see that across the board over, you know, again seventy five nations represented here. There's lots of great beauty to it, um, different styles of uh, whether it's singing or preaching or whatever it is, uh, that there's a lot of beauty in that.
1: And what about the complexities?
0: Well, the complexity of being a church like ours is uh, multifaceted. The first is whenever there are tensions that exist in, in the world, that tension finds its way into our congregation. And so if there's tension between two nations in the world, um, we feel that. That's not just, hey, let's pray for it those nations out there, it's, no, there are people in our congregation that have particular viewpoints. So if you look at what's happening in China right now, in Hong Kong, you know, there are people in our congregation that have lots of opinions and uh, emotional uh, attachments and struggles and, and and preferences. And so this is not just a thing we see on the news. We, we, we hear about it and see about it in our congregation. Uh, the complexity as well is, there's so much that we don't know about each other. Uh, and so, uh, we're, we're, we're prone to making mistakes. We're, we're prone to stereotyping. So you can be all in the same room, but just because you're in the same room with different people doesn't mean you're a congregation that's working or, or a congregant that's working towards reconciliation or justice or understanding. So there's, o- there's always room to make a mistake, uh, or opportunity, I should say, to make a mistake. And I think therein lies some of the complexity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't imagine 75 nations represented in the middle of an incredibly diverse zip code. What are some misconceptions about multi-ethnic churches, Rich?
0: Well, one misconception is, and I'm not sure if this is a misconception, but um, that it's it's easy. Uh, And by easy, uh, I I see a lot of folks or hear a lot of folks who want their congregation to be multi-ethnic and move towards that Kingdom value, which I think is wonderful. Um, but a misconception is just because you get different people in the room uh, doesn't mean you are a, a sign of the kingdom of God. Uh, I think about <clears throat> Dr. Corey Edwards, wrote a book called The Elusive Dream. I believe she's a professor out of Ohio State University. And um, it's about the power of race and in interracial churches. What she gets at is. In most interracial churches in this country, it is still dominated by a kind of white normativity. And so uh, just because you get people who are different in the church uh, doesn't mean that barriers are really coming down. Uh, In in our city language, I like to say we're more than just a, a sanctified subway car where a subway car is, you know, it's a crowd of anonymous, diverse people in close proximity, individually heading to our own destination. And that's what church can easily become, where you get a lot of people who don't look like each other. And we are just still looking to our own individual destinations as opposed to being the new family of Jesus here. So I think the the biggest misconception is that you get different people in the room and you're reconciled and you are expressing values of the kingdom of God. Sadly, you could be doing the total opposite. Uh, Another misconception, at least in my mind, folks think that to be a a multi-ethnic, diverse church, that a lot of people are going to want to be a part of that. A lot of people rather would have often homogeneous expressions of Of worship and such, because to be part of a a truly diverse congregation means we're making space for a lot of people and a lot of different expressions. And a misconception is, again, just because you're in the room doesn't mean um, that other people want to be there necessarily. So it's not a church growth strategy by any stretch of the imagination. It actually is going to limit you significantly. So, I mean, those are just a couple of things that come to mind.
1: Mm, Yeah, very, very helpful. And my wife and I and actually our family in this season, we are part of a multi-ethnic congregation and it's been beautiful and I'm learning a ton. We are learning a ton about some of the preferences we brought into church before I've been, you know, part of very white churches on staff for over a dozen years at a white church and realizing, oh my goodness, there are things that I'm having to unlearn each week. And I think in a really good sense, Rich, it's been disorienting for us. And it's also been beautiful. And I'm sort of discovering and maybe even rediscovering some things that I haven't experienced in a long time. So it's been beautiful. But one thing that I know is that doesn't happen on accident. It is so intentional. And so walk us through some of those intentional pieces. What does it take to cultivate a thriving
0: multi-ethnic
1: or multi-racial church?
0: I I think of a lot of different practices and commitments and values let's take as a given that there is a robust theology of the kingdom of god of the lordship of jesus and 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 what it means to be a saved people uh i i know that's probably a big given to to take but i believe jesus is lord and one of the primary fruits of of the gospel is that a new family is created. We're not just going to heaven when we die. A new family created is created right now, and so uh, I, I take that as as a theological kind of given, a gospel given. But when I think about what what does it take to have a community that's oriented along these lines, I mean. A lot of thoughts come to mind. I'm actually, I'm actually writing something along these lines. I'm writing a book that should be out next year, and one of the chapters deals ex- exactly with this. But um, I, I think about it takes a uh, an honest wrestling. Uh, it's really uh, with the history of race in this country in particular. So what does it take for a congregation to really be marked by reconciled kingdom values and such? It's really a practice of remembering. And so I use a lot of family systems theory to try to get at this and and thinking about genograms and such and the ways that we've been shaped as individuals through the various family systems that we've come from that's deep in our bones and it goes from one generation to the next. And unless we're looking to see the ways we've been shaped, we'll have a hard time being reshaped in the way of Jesus. I think the same applies for Matters of race that unless we are looking back honestly and having a practice of remembering about the nature of racial oppression and racial realities in our country here, we're going to have a hard time. And so talking a lot about race, I I think, is significant uh, for that. I also think about practices of, of deep listening what does it mean to to enter into the story of someone else how does how is that reflected on sunday mornings how is that reflected in our storytelling how is that reflected in our small groups how are we creating space for listening and i'm aware when we talk about listening there are power dynamics at work uh, when we talk about listening, so not every, every, we're all supposed to listen to each other, but not everyone is to listen equal with equal time. I would say, and the people who listen first, uh, matters. And so folks who have been the beneficiaries of power, social power and such, I believe are the people who need to listen first and more often. The people who need to ask more, come with more questions than answers, and to have a church where we are prioritizing the stories of people who have been historically marginalized and giving them a preferred seat at the table and more time to share their story, I think it's an important shift that we all want to listen, but not everyone is called to listen with equal time. I also think about practices of of lament, you know that when w- there's so much um, racial uh, tension injustice in the world. And as a congregation, what do we do uh, when when we're faced with it? We could either ignore it, or we can uh, we can lament it. And what I mean by lament, I mean is we are orienting our gatherings and our times of prayer by living in reality and living in this world. That in a culture of outrage, where it's very easy to cancel someone else, or just ignore it, or or just be angry, all that. How how do we convert? our rage and our anger and our grief into lament, to really create a different kind of social imagination. Uh, And so, you know, I I think of that, I think about prayer. I mean, mean, how do we have a, having a life of of prayer that's deeply connected to the realities of racial divisiveness and hostility, I I think needs to happen. I think about practices of racial self-examination. There's so many different ways to think through whether a congregation is moving towards being truly reconciled and not just aesthetically diverse uh, and so to that end we don't want to stop at diversity that's that's a good entry point but it's but it's not the end that, that Jesus has in mind so those are just a few of the practices uh you know who's in power who's who who's Who's on the elder board? Who's who's preaching? Who's leading worship? Who are the leaders? Who's deciding what's happening financially? Is there diversity and shared power at every level? Because when you start talking about power, now you're talking about change and transformation. So, I mean, I'm probably rattling a little bit here, but those are some of the things that come to mind.
1: Thank you, Rich. That's, that's great. And I love even that picture that diversity is a start. We don't just want aesthetic diversity, but true reconciliation. I see that and, and I've heard much of that from the story and the narrative of, of new life. So thank you for what you guys are doing. I can't wait to read your book. By the way, we'll have to have you back on the podcast to, to talk about that. There's a lot of talk about multi-ethnic and multiracial churches right now. And I'm curious, what's encouraging and discouraging to you about those multi-ethnic church conversations unfolding right now?
0: Well, I think what's in, what's encouraging is that folks are willing to go down this road. Um, it's not an easy road. It's a challenging road. And I, I think it's a road that reflects much of what do we see the New Testament being oriented towards. And so, I mean, I'm encouraged that folks are taking it seriously. I think what's discouraging is, and I think this comes back to theology and, and comes back to what I just said a little earlier. That to really be a church that's marked by reconciliation, it requires us to deal with the ma- with issues of race on multiple levels. And I'm convinced, I'm concerned, I should say, that folks are stepping into it without really addressing the levels. When I think about having conversations of race, and I, I think they need to be had on five different levels. Uh, I, I think they need to be had on a theological level, a historical level, a sociological level, a formational level, and a level of just a a narrative level, our stories. And I think if we're not really approaching the conversations of racism, multi-ethnicity, reconciliation from those five different perspectives, uh, we could think we're we're doing real good and we could... uh, actually be doing the opposite, but because it looks good aesthetically, we could think we're a lot further than we are. And so I'm encouraged that people are going down this road. I'm not as encouraged because I don't know if folks are really wrestling with the multifaceted nature of what it means to be reconciled. And so uh, by God's grace, I think I say continue, but um, I think those five different aspects must be held together. It's really helpful,
1: Rich, to say there's, there's five different levels of that. And to, to be examining those, I want to go back later and write those down and spend some time with those. Um, our family was propelled really into a, a different way of thinking and living, and we've had to ask some different questions. We have um, our oldest two children are adopted from Ethiopia, as I mentioned before we we went live. And um, we're reading and examining our lives, and we're seeing all kinds of things we didn't know were there, and biases, and aha moments and things that others may say, duh, of course, but that's been big for us. And so for somebody listening to this, what would you recommend next steps when somebody of a majority culture realizes I have all kinds of wrong thinking and wrong actions? What are those places to start?
0: I can answer this on a couple of levels. I I think from there's a church level, then there's just like um, a individual level. From an individual level, if you're from a majority culture and you're feeling that, I think that's great that you have that level of self-awareness. And so I, I think that's a really good start. A lot of folks uh, start and end there, but I'd say that's a good start to have. And there's no need for any kind of uh, self-wallowing and, uh, and, and all that there. And I would say use that newfound awareness to dive a bit deeper into it. Um, and so I, I don't know if... Unless we are really t- addressing history and and naming the particular, the, the residue that continually finds itself in our world, expressed in our world, I, I don't know if we can get really far in, in the process. And so uh, I, I, for those who are listening, the, the self-awareness is great. Uh, I would also say it, it's a great opportunity as well to uh, have your uh, theological imagination Uh, shaped by people who are people of color, who you might not be reading. I I think it's a a great opportunity to find yourself studying and reading and being discipled by people who are not from a majority culture to see uh, the world from their perspective. and so, uh, whether it's reading, whether it's uh, entering into some form of discipleship relationship, who do you read? Who do you learn from? What history is shaping you? What understanding of this country and America, in particular in the United States, is shaping you? Uh, you know, so I think it's a good start. But um, I, I think that level of growing in self awareness and educating yourself uh, along those lines. And then, by God's grace, uh, pointing out whenever uh, be- becoming an ally, becoming someone who is growing in being conversant with the systems and structures and the powers and principalities that are at work in the world, and to call it out when you see it. I, I think those are, some, those are some simple ways, I think, where people can uh, move forward. But I, I, I do think it, it requires a, a good amount of self-reflection, self-examination and allowing yourself to be shaped by people who probably have not shaped you before, uh, or or up up to this point. So those are just a few things that come to mind.
1: Yes, yes, incredibly helpful. Thanks for that, Rich. Um, We are all about leaders getting healthy, reaching more impact, going the long haul. And so many leaders believe that in order to lead today, you have to burn out, stress out, face so much anxiety, and maybe lose your soul in the process. And we wholeheartedly do not believe that. And so we always want to get a little bit personal with guests on here to just say, what are some practices or rhythms you have in your life as ways that you practice health?
0: Yeah, I, this is something that I've been wrestling with for many years. And it's one of the things that our congregation is, tries to really wrestle with, uh, integrity. Uh, I would say uh, how I think through it is through a rule of life, and without going too much into a rule of life, I, I like to think of a rule of life as a framework of rhythms and relationships that help me pay attention to God, to myself, and to others, uh, and to love you know, out of which we're loving well. But it's it's a framework of rhythms and relationships. And so when I think about, uh, my week, when I think about my a month, a year, I'm thinking about their particular rhythms and, and relationships that nurture, nourish, sustain me. In particular, I, a few come to mind. Regular weekly Sabbath keeping is an indispensable part of my own personal spiritual formation from 6 p.m. Friday night to 6 p.m. Saturday night. Uh, I'm not working. Uh, I am not on Email. I'm not preparing sermons. I'm not doing anything work related, whether paid or unpaid. Uh, it's a time of stopping, of resting, of delighting, of contemplating. And for me, that's that's one of the, the baselines of my own personal formation of of how I try to maintain some uh, you know some health in my life. Um, uh, silence is another component of it for me. I'm really shaped by the contemplative tradition, the monastic tradition. And so I spend uh, a good amount of time on a regular basis in silence. And so whether it's 10 to you know 40 minutes of silence in a given day, uh, whether that happens at one moment or happens throughout the day, uh, is an important part of my own health. Having my life shaped by scripture is an important part. Having people in my life that speak into me, I I mean, seasons of therapy is very important to me. Seeing, I have a leadership coach that I meet with once a month that helps me think through some of the challenges that I'm facing. Uh, I have a group of pastor friends that I meet with monthly as well for a good 60 to 90 minutes over uh, a video call. And that's just been such a anchoring practice for me uh, to have friends on the journey. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, embracing my limits, uh, not saying yes to everything, silence, scripture, Sabbath. I just came back from a four month sabbatical, uh, over the summer I was, you know, uh, away and resting repl- We get that on our, every pastor gets that every seven years here at new life. So, uh, yeah, those are a few, a few of the rhythms and relationships that are helping me to move towards, uh, deeper and greater health.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for that. And I mean, really, in in many ways, New Life has a a large footprint that you guys are shaping leaders across the country. I know you guys host some events and conferences, been written about, obviously, in Pete Scacero's books, um, widely read across the country. What are some ways that people can track along and learn from you personally, but also learn from the ministry of New
0: Life? Uh, I'm pretty engaged on social media. Um, I, I like to think of it as a place where I get to connect with others. I I get, I've learned so much from others on social media and it's a place I'm a preacher. So it's a place where I get to preach a bit in terms of, you know, what am I learning and what do I sense God saying? And so it's a nice place to curate my thoughts and such. uh, but that's just, I mean, at Twitter it's just at rich velotis, R I C H V I L L O D A S. Um, same thing on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, that's, that's kind of like my online presence there. Uh, and in terms of new life, yeah. Um, If you go to newlife.nyc, you'll get a a snapshot of our congregation and the work we're doing through our uh, Community Development Corporation, what we're doing through the classes and conferences and uh, different learning environments and such that we uh, put together on a given year. And then if you went to emotionallyhealthy.org, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, what uh, Pete Scazzaro is leading right now, he's been leading over the years. Is uh really the the global arm of outreach for us as a church. And so we have our local community development corporation, and then we have emotionally healthy discipleship as kind of our global arm of how do we help pastors and leaders and churches with this particular paradigm of spiritual formation. So if you go to emotionallyhealthy.org, newlife.nyc, or at rich for Lotus, you'll see some of the stuff that we're up to.
1: Awesome. Well, Rich, thanks for your time and for your honesty for all of what you're doing there. Uh, incredibly inspiring and incredibly helpful today to have you on the podcast. Uh, next time I'm in your neck of the woods, we got to eat some Puerto Rican food together, or at least you got to tell me the the places to go. So thanks, Rich, for all of what you're doing, and thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: Well, I love that, man. I know some spots already.
1: <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks. Well, I love what the church is doing. I love Rich's words. I love the hope that they are bringing so many other churches, and I love how they're leading the way. There's so much we have to glean from this episode, and I just want to leave you with this last question. What is one next step that you have based on something that you heard? What's one next step that you have? This could be across the board. For you, it may be attending a multi-ethnic church. For you, it may be getting a glance uh, at what issues multi-ethnic churches have that you don't know about. My wife and I and our family just recently started attending a multi-ethnic church, and it has been incredible for us to experience different worship styles, to have different conversations, and ultimately to see the gospel in such a richer light. So I am so grateful for this experience And we have a multicultural family as our two oldest are adopted from Ethiopia, and we are constantly learning about the different worlds and the different spaces that we need to be in. And I'll tell you what, it is humbling and it is encouraging at the same time to learn from others with a different perspective and ultimately to see the gospel in so much of a fuller light than I have before. So what is your next step based on something that you learned here in this podcast. We want to continue to curate great conversations for you, ones that are worth having but we want to remind you of this it is indeed possible to continue to lead without losing your soul. Guys, keep being healthy it matters, fight for it in your church, in your life in your organization, in your business in your leadership, in your family it is worth it get healthy so you can reach more impact. Focus so low